So we're more aware than ever before, racism in America runs deep, from policing to policy and right down to financial services. That's right, financial services. Keep in mind, the movement that's gripping our nation and now the globe all started with a counterfeit $20 bill. This week on Bankadelic, a special report, Race, Racism, and Banking from Sins to Solutions in the Wake of the George Floyd Killing. From the studios of Karma Productions Worldwide in Chicago, this is Lou Carlozo's Bankadelic. Bankadelic, the colorful side of finance, where we supply expert views, riff on the news, innovate, and investigate actionable insights unscripted. Banking with a caffeine kick. I'm your host, Lou Carlozo, inviting you to sit back, grab a cuppa, kick up your feet. Here we go. Thanks for tuning into this special episode of Bankadelic. And while this is a podcast I wish I didn't have to do, it is probably the most important that I've ever attempted. Here's why I'm doing it. Long before George Floyd's killing at the hands of four Minneapolis police officers, I've been aware from my perch in banking, and mainly, by the way, through the eyes of others smarter and more experienced than me, that an element of racism still exists in the industry. On this special episode, I'm putting my reporter hat back on, courtesy of my days at the Chicago Tribune, to offer an overview of three areas of racism in banking that need to be acknowledged and confronted. One, banks continue to show prejudice towards African-American customers. Two, banks continue to show prejudice towards African-American employees. And three, Banks engage in systematic racism that is so commonly accepted, few, if any, notice it, let alone call it out. Now, to be fair, progress has been made even before the current wave of protests began. So I'm also going to take a look at some efforts being made to give African Americans a voice and a place at the higher echelons of financial services. In fact, we'll hear from one of those voices who spoke out powerfully this past week. Finally, we're going to take a close look at the $20 bill. It's more than just the currency that George Floyd allegedly used in counterfeit form. In fact, it may be the most potent symbol imaginable of how far our financial system needs to go. Stay with me, or (laughs) if you're the kind that doesn't like suspense, skip to the end, and I guarantee you'll hear something related to that $20 bill you've never considered before or seen or heard on any newsfeed. Nothing on this podcast, aside from my Lose Views commentary at the end, is based on opinion or conjecture. I have solid facts to back up these assertions, and you will hear those facts used throughout the podcast from beginning to end. As football careers go, Jimmy Kennedy had a good one. The defensive tackle was a 2002 Big Ten Lineman of the Year when he played at Penn State and then went on to a nine-season pro football career where at 6'4 and 320 pounds, he was plenty intimidating. 
As a result of that career, Kennedy earned $13 million and was the kind of person most banks would be happy to have as a client. But as a December 11, 2019 New York Times story describes, Kennedy kept getting the runaround when he tried to get private client status at a J.P. Morgan branch in Arizona. Baffled as to what was happening, especially when the employee that he first became friends with was let go under mysterious circumstances, he began to tape conversations. And here's one conversation he had with another African-American, an employee at Chase, as to what was going on and why he couldn't get that private client status. As African-Americans, understand this, bro. Like, you're an ex-football player, so you're bigger than the average person, period. And you're also an African-American. When in Arizona. I don't have to tell you about what the demographics are in Arizona. Mm -hmm. They don't see people like you a lot. I'm from Atlanta. Mm -hmm. I see people like you all the time. You see what I'm saying? So I get it, but that doesn't mean that everybody gets it. But I don't mean that. I got you. I understand what you're saying. I'm, but a client is a client. Like, I for understand example, it. Like, understand what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. How many white clients or whatever the case may be, if you set up for them to be a private client and then you guys as a company fire that guy, why wasn't the next person taken over to finish what was what he had on his desk? Would this behavior by the bank have been ignored if Kennedy hadn't taped the conversation? You might as well ask if Amy Cooper, the so-called Central Park Karen, had gotten away with saying to police that a black man was threatening her if Christian Cooper had not had the presence of mind to record the incident on a mobile phone. In fact, it took another tape, this one by former Chase employee Ricardo Peters, to capture a conversation where a superior at that same branch, Frank Venero, explained why the bank would not be taking on as a client a woman who had received $372,000 in a wrongful death settlement involving her son's death. This is what Venero said. Quote, you've got somebody who's coming from Section 8, never had a nickel to spend, and now she's got $400,000. What do you think's going to happen with that money? It's gone, end quote. When Peters objected, Venero responded, quote, you're not investing a dime for this lady, end quote. He went on to say that he knew from experience she would quickly burn through the cash. Quote, it happens every single time, end quote. Just the way it is and Some things will never change That's just the way it is That's just the way We'll get to how Chase responded to the New York Times piece and what they did to go above and beyond in just a moment. Now, I'd like to share with you an excerpt from a story that WBEZ 91.5 FM in Chicago just released on June 3rd. It's an outstanding piece called Where Banks Don't Lend, and here's the thesis as WBEZ describes it. In Chicago, lenders have invested more in a single white neighborhood than all the black neighborhoods combined. Call it modern-day redlining. Here, WBEZ reporter Linda Lutton describes just how this system works or doesn't work. Lending is so closely tied to the race of the area, you might think you're looking at one of the old redlining maps. Here are the numbers. 68% of all lending went to majority white areas. Majority black neighborhoods got just 8%. Latino areas, a hair more. 
That's even though Chicago has fairly similar numbers of white, black, and Latino areas. And we found some of the city's biggest lenders have even more disparate lending records. Bank of America, Guaranteed Rate, Wells Fargo, they all lend at least 10 times more in white areas than they do in Chicago's black or Latino neighborhoods. So, for example, Lincoln Park on the north side of Chicago gets more investment from lenders than all black neighborhoods combined. And that's not the only neighborhood where that's true. WBEZ approached all the lenders mentioned in this story. No one would comment on tape. So this is Randy Hultgren, incoming president of the Illinois Bankers Association, which represents nearly all banks in the state. I think all of this points to continued issues uh, that need to be addressed. We've got to do better. All of us need to do better. Hultgren says disparities often reflect vestiges of historical underinvestment. That's underinvestment that no one has fixed yet. Not banks, not governments, not communities. What the WBEZ reporting points out beautifully is that so often racism is systemic, it is endemic, it is institutionalized, and really it's tough to get one's arms around. That is true not only in banking and financial services, but any American industry. That said, when incidents are brought to light, as they were in the New York Times piece, sometimes banks can respond in a tone-deaf way. Witness what J.P. Morgan Chase issued as a statement after Jimmy Kennedy's story was unveiled. Quote, it's clear Mr. Kennedy had a terrible customer experience with us. Our review of the matter found there was a series of administrative delays in processing his investments that would have frustrated any client. End quote. Really? But let's give J.P. Morgan Chase credit for what they did right and did right ahead of the curve. On April 9th, they named Brian Lamb the Global Head of Diversity and Inclusion. That's a newly created position for Chase. And Lamb, who reports to the co-presidents of the bank, is responsible for executing a strategy that builds on the firm's existing work and further incorporates diversity into products, services, how the bank serves clients, helps communities, and supports employees. That last part in particular has got to be pretty important because Chase did have to settle at one point for $24 million to end a class action lawsuit by black employees because of discrimination. We can point out the many problems that are out there, but we also need to recognize that as long as progress is coming, Let's make note of that, too. In fact, the April 9th announcement came almost a full two months before George Floyd was killed. And now from how banks are working with clients to how they work with their own employees. In February 2020, the U.S. House Committee on Financial Services Majority Staff released a report, Diversity and Inclusion, Holding America's Large Banks Accountable. The report reached a number of interesting conclusions that A, banks' boards of directors are not diverse, B, Banks' senior employees are not diverse, and C, banks have limited spending and investment with diverse firms. 
Now, and the report states, despite these shortcomings, the committee staff analysis also found that some banks are implementing diversity-focused policies and practices, which include recruiting diverse talent, establishing employee resource groups, and linking diversity and inclusion to results and performance. Here in this clip, Congressman Bill Foster, Democrat from Illinois and chair of the Task Force on Artificial Intelligence, talks about the connection between diversity and productivity. Listen. In its 2020 report on bank diversity data, committee staff cites research that diversity can drive and improve innovation, create new market opportunities, and enhance performance. Banks and other financial service firms must continue to hire and promote diverse talent that can help them out-innovate and outperform others. The question is, how are banks doing? And there is some good news on this front. Bank of America, for example, has a black professional group, which was one of the bank's first employee networks. It now has more than 13,000 members in chapters across the U.S. According to Bank of America, BPG supports the recruitment, retention, and promotion of black African-American employees, offers mentoring to help develop leadership potential, and sponsors regular networking and virtual events events. Following up on this, the publication American Banker talked about a 23-page report Bank of America put out that made quite the claim that B of A has a more diverse workforce than its financial services peers based on U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission data. Here's a quote from Chief Executive Officer Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. It's not left to chance. The big companies have no excuse you can do it just by saying we're going to do it, but it takes planning. And yet one bank's best efforts do not an industry revolution make. The Washington Post asked 15 major U.S. banks to release their race and gender data. Data, by the way, that they already report to the federal government. Only two shared the full numbers. This in December 2019. And yet there may be evidence, strong evidence, that some things are about to change, at least in terms of how banks approach the issue of race. The most dramatic example of this involves Citi. Mark Mason, the CFO of Citi, wrote a very powerful blog, which, by the way, ran under the Citi masthead, where he talks about what it's like to be an African-American in the banking industry at this poignant time. Yet it's about much more than that too. Even though I'm the CFO of a global bank, he writes, the killings of George Floyd in Minnesota, Ahmaud Aubrey in Georgia, and Breonna Taylor in Kentucky are reminders of the dangers black Americans like me face in living our daily lives. Despite the progress the United States has made, black Americans are too often denied basic privileges that others take for granted. I'm not talking about the privileges of wealth, education, or job opportunities. I'm talking about the fundamental human and civil rights and the dignity and respect that comes with them. I'm talking about something as mundane as going for a jog. But perhaps even more powerful was the way that Mason led into his blog post. And I'm going to read for you the first several paragraphs of his post, and it's not going to take as long as you might think. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. 
I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. What do you want? I can breathe. So, where do we go from here? Community banks, fintechs, credit unions, regional banks, big banks, all have a shared mission, perhaps for the very first time in a long time, to look at the inequities, look at the injustices, and ask the question, how can the power of financial services make a difference? Jennifer Tesher is one of the most eloquent speakers when it comes to the issue of equalities and opportunities. Jennifer is president and CEO of the Financial Health Network, and I've known Jennifer for a long time. I was blessed to have her as one of the early guests on Bankadelic, and in the preparation for the podcast, I asked her, is there anything in particular you'd like to talk about that I haven't brought up? And immediately, Jennifer honed in on the issue of race, financial opportunity, and financial inclusion. To think that that was what she had a strong opinion about and wanted to say something about really speaks volumes as she was well ahead of the curve on this issue. What she said then bears repeating now, and I'm going to play an excerpt from that interview. The context here is COVID, but the relevancy to today, absolutely the same. We survey annually about 5,000 people to really understand what financial health looks like in America. We survey the same people year on year and are able to see over the course of time how people's financial health is changing. And that survey goes into the field in April. But as we were preparing for that, we were in the field in March and we were able to ask similarly some COVID kinds of questions. So what we found, for instance, is that people of color say they're much more likely to lose their job in the next three months due to the COVID-19 outbreak. About 9% of white individuals are worried about losing their job, but for African-Americans, that's 14%, and for Latinx, that's 17%. That's almost double the rate of whites. Wow. Um, only 12% of whites say they're likely to run out of money in the next three months because of COVID. For African-Americans, that's 22%. And for Latinx, that's 26%, more than double. We're all certainly feeling anxiety. Whites say about 56% of them are feeling anxious about the outbreak. But for African-Americans, that's 70%. And given the statistics that we just mentioned from the story in the Sun-Times, it's not surprising that they're worried about it. Let's just paint the picture. A, they're likely to be employed in jobs that they're either going to lose because of the outbreak or they're going to be having to go to and risk their lives. In order to get to those jobs, they're more likely to have to take public transportation, another risk of infection. Their physical health generally is more compromised. They're more likely to have underlying conditions like diabetes and hypertension, conditions that can really make COVID deadly. They have less access to fresh food. They can't afford to stock up for you know, months worth of toilet paper or food. 
we really need to make sure that the support and aid that we're all trying to provide right now, that we're really trying to aim it at those who are most vulnerable. And when this is over, we have got to redouble our efforts around equity in this country and making sure that we are looking at the systemic issues that keep people of color in these more vulnerable positions. Mother, mother, there's too many of you to cry. Brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some loving here today. And now, Lose Views, which for this special episode is going to take the form of a story as well as a commentary. One of the things I've wondered ever since George Floyd's killing was broadcast to the world is what happened to the $20 counterfeit bill that he was supposedly carrying and using to buy cigarettes at a convenience store. From the various reports I've read, the bill was identified as counterfeit because the ink was still running on it. That got me thinking, as writers like me are prone to do, what about the $20 bill? What about the history of the $20 bill? And this was the first thing that came to mind. On the $1 bill, the $2 bill, the $5 bill, the $10 bill, the $20 bill, the $50 bill, and the $100 bill, you have white men. So what about the white man who is on the $20 bill? counterfeit or real in this case. That would happen to be Andrew Jackson. Now, for those of you who need a quick history primer, and I know I did, Andrew Jackson was the seventh president of the United States, serving from 1829 to 1837. Historians will tell you that Jackson was quite the character. He was noted for his incredibly irascible temper, his propensity towards dueling, and his prodigious collection of slaves. At one point, Jackson owned as many as 300 slaves for his plantation, the Hermitage, which is near Nashville. And when one slave had the temerity to elope and leave his keep, Jackson placed an ad in the Tennessee Gazette on October 3rd, 1803, and he posted a reward of $50 plus reasonable expenses to return that slave. The future president and current resident on our $20 bill added an extra incentive of, quote, $10 extra for every 100 lashes given him up to the amount of $300. Now, let's do a little bit of math. The reward for the slave was hefty enough. In today's money, $1,134.47. But considering the slave was, under the rules of the time, Jackson's property, he was willing to dish out quite a bit more for the lashes that the person finding the slave could distribute. If you went to the maximum of 3,000 lashes, you would earn $300, which in today's money is $6,800 and change. What's the point of all this? Well, 
As you might have guessed, Andrew Jackson was a wealthy slave owner, but he was a lot more than that. He was a vehement anti-abolitionist president. So he didn't just own slaves, he fought to make sure slaves would never be free. Fast forward to 2016. On April 20th, Jack Lew, the Treasury Secretary under President Barack Obama, announced that Andrew Jackson would be supplanted on the $20 bill by Harriet Tubman. It would be a huge first, and Lew was excited about it. Not only a woman on American currency, but a black woman. Now here's a little bit about Harriet Tubman. Tubman was born a slave in March 1822 and as a child served various slave owners, receiving beatings and whippings to keep her in line, and suffered a traumatic brain injury when a slave owner threw a large metal weight that hit her. She was a staunch abolitionist and was responsible over the course of her life for ushering 70 people to freedom along the Underground Railroad. Lou was confident that in 2020, Harriet Tubman's face would appear on the $20 bill. Then something happened along the way. With a new administration and a new treasury secretary, Stephen Mnuchin announced this in May 2019 that not only was Tubman not going to appear on the $20 bill in 2020, at earliest it would be 2028. And you can't make this stuff up, people. In explaining the reason for taking Tubman off the $20 bill, Mnuchin cited concerns over counterfeiting. So while Harriet Tubman waits for her day in the sun, and the slave owner, anti-abolitionist, he's already got one, we as a nation have to decide whether we will confront the problems of race or run. Thanks for tuning into this special episode of Bankadelic. I want to thank our producer, Jenny Elman, and a special thanks to the William Mills Agency, the sponsor of this podcast. They got behind the idea for this episode right away, gave us the green light, and for that, I am very thankful. This episode has meant an awful lot to me. Until next time, so long. In a little tent Oh, and just like the river I've been running Ever since It's been a long A long time coming But I know A change gonna come Oh, yes it will It's been too up there beyond the sky it's been a long a long time coming but I know a change gonna come oh yes it will I go Somebody keep telling me don't hang around
Oh, 